Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode three of the Chemistry Podcast. I'm your host, Lucy, and I'm so excited to have our very first faculty member guest on the podcast today. I have with me Professor Alana Ogata. She is an assistant professor with joint appointments at the Department of Chemical and Physical Sciences, as well as the Department of Chemistry at the University of Toronto, Mississauga. Throughout her quite fabulous academic career, she has received seven fellowships and published nineteen papers in high-impact journals. Professor Ogata received her PhD degree at the University of California, Irvine, where she was an NSF graduate research fellow, and where she worked in the Penner Lab.、Um, she also worked at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology under the NSF Grow Fellowship, and after completing her PhD, she, Professor Ogata has done postdoctoral work. Both in the Patterson Lab at UC Irvine, as well as at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, where she worked on some pretty interesting things with COVID nineteen, which we will definitely be talking about on this podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Ogata, for your presence and help with this podcast.、Um, it's a pleasure to have you here today. Before we begin, may I ask, is it okay if I call you Alana on the podcast? Yes, you can call me Alana, and thank you for having me on this podcast. I saw your Twitter post, and I'm a big supporter of science communication because it is so key to making chemistry accessible to the public and inspiring the next generation of scientists. So I am happy to support this podcast. As for my background, I grew up in the Washington D.C. area, and when I was in high school, I wasn't sure what I wanted to be, and actually didn't like chemistry class very much. So when I got to the College of William and Mary for undergraduate studies, I was having a hard time figuring out what I wanted to major in. But sophomore year, I sat in on a chemistry seminar with Professor Kristen Wasthals, and she started talking about doing single molecule fluorescence studies to understand how solar cells work, and I thought. Oh my God! You can do that. What is this chemistry and research that you're talking about? And at the end of that seminar, my friend said, "Hey, let's ask her for a research opportunity." And without really understanding what that meant, we talked to her and ended up joining her lab. And I did research with her for three years. Professor Washoltz is one of the most influential mentors I've had because she really sparked my passion for chemistry, taught me basic skills, gave me an amazing foundation for doing independent research, and she was the one to tell me about graduate school. I originally was going to get a job, and she said, "Hey, you know, you can do research and get paid for it and get a degree." So I applied, got into UC Irvine, and made my way to California for my PhD. There, I worked under Professor Reg Penner, developing electrochemical biosensors for cancer detection. And Reg is another amazing mentor who catalyzed my growth and development as a scientist. He just gave me creative freedom and support and opportunities to do what I love. And in hindsight, yeah, that freedom is what turned the spark into a flame for chemistry research. And by the end of it, I had decided that I wanted to. Pursue a career as a faculty member、uh, at an R1 institution, and so I did a short-term 
postdoc with Joe Patterson at UC Irvine, completely switched fields, learned cryo-TEM to look at material formation mechanisms, and that experience really solidified my desire and passion to go in academia and become a faculty mentor. Lastly, I just came from my postdoc uh, in Professor David Wald's lab at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. And my postdoc happened in the middle of the pandemic, but because of that, I had the opportunity to work on SARS-CoV-2 research in real time. And that experience was crazy, but taught me discipline and scientific rigor in a whole nother way than anything I had experienced before it. And so today I am here in Canada. I now work at the University of Toronto as an assistant professor and I'm building a lab that intersects bioanalytical chemistry, materials chemistry, and clinical chemistry to innovate new diagnostics based on bio-inspired materials. And my long-term dream, big dream in life, is to innovate new diagnostics for gynecological diseases and help transform women's health. Um, I just wanted to say that I feel like I have a somewhat, even though I'm still an undergrad right now, I had a very um, I had a somewhat like a same experience as you about like how coming into college I didn't really know um, what like an academic career in chemistry was like and um, I and I really felt you on that part where like an undergrad in undergrad is really the time where like I also was introduced to this field and I was I had no idea like you could even really be an academic chemist until after I came to college and that that part of that part of your introduction slash life just really resonates with me. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's very common. I mean, my parents are not from STEM fields and it wasn't something I heard about. And even after joining a research group in undergrad, I didn't know what the career choices were. I just knew that I was very excited about the chemistry I was doing. And I always tell people the story that my first year as a freshman, I took general chemistry and it was the first exam I had and I failed. And that was my introduction into college. Um, but, you know, I kept going and I changed my study habits uh, and it all worked out. Well, I feel like it worked out quite perfectly. And um, um, the part I really wanted to talk to you about, and I think um, our listeners might also be really excited to hear about, is your experience um, working on frontline research in the in like in the very beginning of the pandemic, um, can you talk a can you talk a little bit about like what you worked on and just how was that like? I mean, I can only imagine what that was like, but you almost had the pressure of like the entire world, like on these group of on these groups of scientists trying to like work on finding ways to either understand or combat the pandemic and. Um, feel free to like talk about your science or like what I'm really interested in is, is like did that take like a toll on you guys physically or emotionally because I like, just can't imagine what type of like what was going through your your head like in this experience mm -hmm. it it was very emotionally tolling and I, I will go into that a little bit but for background I was a postdoc in David Walt's lab and he is at the Brigham and Women's Hospital as well as the Harvard Medical School. He is jointly appointed. And he's really a leader in analytical chemistry and being able to detect proteins 
with single molecule resolution, which in layman's terms just mean we can detect very, very, very low concentrations of proteins uh, in different biofluids like blood. So a lot of our research before the pandemic was focused on advancing diagnostics and looking into new protein markers for diseases. When the pandemic hit, essentially the timeline is Harvard and MIT and the surrounding schools announced that they would be sending students home and we were hearing about this and pretty much within four days, the hospital also shut down and told all of us to go home until you know some unforeseeable uh, timeline. We had no idea that this pandemic was gonna last for so long, but within about two weeks, it became very apparent that this was a serious issue and research labs were allowed to pivot and apply for grants to get new funding to start working on COVID. And our lab did just that. Uh, my advisor, Dr. Walt, chose four of us to put together a grant within about two weeks. And uh, we wow. successfully did that and got, got it. And we were all very excited and very honored to be chosen to work. And we were allowed privileges to come back into the lab. Extremely strict you know, rotation. There could only be two of us at a time. Of course, masks and social distancing. And that's definitely where the stress, part of the stress started coming in. Uh, you know, people didn't know how safe or dangerous this disease was in the beginning. And we were going straight into a hospital, uh, one of the biggest hospitals in Boston to keep working. And so a lot of stress came from making sure we were following the rules and thinking about our own safety as well. At that time, Boston did a great job setting up a consortium, which was basically a multi-institutional network of universities and hospitals to come together and combat the pandemic. So there was different branches of that. Diagnostics was one of them. So the ability to detect the virus in someone and diagnose them with the disease, which of course is very important and still is. And Dr. Walt was the head of that. So we were in charge of developing new diagnostics. Right away, we knew that our technologies would be very useful in detecting the antibodies that infected patients would generate uh, if they caught COVID-19. And we started working on that. Eventually, you know, I, I was talking with Dr. Walt and we came with the idea to then also measure the actual viral proteins. And, and this was something that was less common in the literature. Antibody assays were being developed quite quickly, uh, but looking at the actual viral protein in patients uh, had yet to be done. And so myself and another amazing collaborator, Adam Maley, started working on that. And we were working around the clock and then scheduling our times to work around the clock with two other amazing scientists. And ultimately, you know, we got a lot done in, I would say, a four to five month period, but the pressure was very hard to describe. And, and similar to what you were saying, it's it was not just pressure to, of course, do good science and do it in a relatively good speed, but watching the news every day and, and thinking that, you know, if your research could have an impact, how, how quickly could you get that out, but with still enough rigor so that it's good science and um, whether or not we were consciously thinking about it, I think 
it pushed us to our limits emotionally and physically. Yeah, um, as I said, like before, I really couldn't imagine just how much pressure that could have been. Um, what were some ways that like you dealt with that personally? Because you did mention how, and understandably so, how there were super strict guidelines, social distancing, only two people in the lab at once. And I know for me, like when I'm in my lab, a lot, and in labs in general, I feel like a lot of it is like collaboration. Like you go over to your bench partner and be like, hey, like what's up with this? Like, what, um, like oh, um, what's up with this? Am I doing something wrong? Um, but like you couldn't do that. Um, how um, how did you cope with that? Like being in a, such an isolating environment, yet a such high pressure environment. I I will say in hindsight, I'm I'm not sure I did cope with it, um, which is a whole nother story. But we did in the beginning set that we had to work in pairs, partly for safety because it's unsafe for you to work in a completely empty research building, and secondly for this reason, you know, having someone to talk to. And commiserate with and so me um and and dr maley you know we leaned on each other a lot i am so thankful that we were working together the other two scientists uh were tal gilboa and maya kitman they were also we were a team we were always talking on slack we were always talking on zoom and so that helped a lot having a team in any situation was critical we also stressed out a lot together we broke down together and so that got us through in terms of coping personally I, I will have to say I, I don't think I was coping and it was a big lesson for me I I was excited about the research I was passionate about the research and we all worked very hard but it also meant we were waking up at 6 a.m. to make sure we were on top of emails we would work all day we would make sure we were on track with our rotations. We would get home and maybe start working on a grant to get some more money or checking up on emails and Zooms because things were just moving so fast. And that's what I was doing for at least several weeks. And I know at some point, each of our team members broke down a bit and we had to really ask ourselves, you know, how do we, how do we stop or slow down? And I'm not sure that was really possible until further in the pandemic when things starting to lighten up. But um, to be transparent, my body manifested um, in different ways to the stress. And now I'm sort of dealing with that to this day. But it was a signal to me that I, I had to stop and slow down in some fashion. Otherwise, this was not sustainable. And I think it was a good lesson that a lot of us in academia will push through because we think we can or we think we have to. Yeah. And so I encourage a lot of young scientists now to listen to their bodies and listen to their minds because at some point, you know, pushing through can have some permanent effects and you should really just stop and, and rest for a second. Mm -hmm. I talked a little bit about this on a previous episode too how just how important it is to rest and thank you really for sharing that and I feel like again the whole reason why I started this podcast is that just have people see like what happens behind the science behind the lab work and the published papers the grants that 
and I really want people to know just how important it is to understand the more emotional side of science that we go through, especially science during a such a tumultuous time.、Um, how did it feel when you got that notification shortly after everything closed, saying like, "Hey, you're coming back to work on this"? Beyond excited, and you know, throughout this, Dr. Walt. Was also trying to be super supportive. I mean, he was navigating a pandemic as well, and you know, he encouraged as much as he could to rest and take care of ourselves. But it was it was a hard balance because I was extremely excited and I was ready. You know, I felt like I had trained for this. I'm good at science. I'm good at what I do. And so once I got the notification, I was ready to go. And put my heart into it, and so were my coworkers, and we did.、Um, and I still think it, it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to work on real-time research. Oh yes. And so I don't re- regret, you know, doing what we did and being part of this amazing opportunity.、Um, and to this day, I'm thinking of ways to do some research. Pandemic is still very much going on,、um, but it's nice to know the other side of it. You know, the other taxing parts of being part of that kind of research. Um, how was the switch for you? Because I would assume that you you had a bunch of other projects you were working on, but you had to like completely switch and focus on the pandemic, and and of course, as you mentioned before, like and then work with quickly switch from like a more traditional like pre-COVID research environment to the strict guidelines. How did you navigate that switch? And wasn't like an easy switch because. I had gone through a PhD. I was okay with the switch, but at the end of the day, I had two or three projects that I had put quite a bit of work into for the first five months of my postdoc, and 75% of that didn't go anywhere. I didn't have time to work on it once we were able to go back to non-COVID research, and so I think for some people that would be. Very discouraging, and you would think it's a waste of five months. But、um, I've learned that everything you do in the lab is worth something, and that includes learning the skills to then do other research more efficiently. So, all the skills that I was building up to do those other projects were extremely useful. When I then started doing COVID research, I was able to apply myself much faster and get results much faster because of that. So. It is a bit disappointing. I had some cool projects going on at the time, but、um, and they didn't work out. They're not going to turn into a publication. They barely turned into successful experiments. But the experience I got from working on those really accelerated the work I could do with COVID. And I, I always try and remind students that as well. You know, failed experiments. It's okay as long as you come from it and learn something. It will be useful. And and that was the case here. Definitely. Um, you did mention that like, um, since you've um gone through like a PhD and everything that that really trained you for something like this. Um, during your time of like the, I don't want to use the words most stressful, but like during like the height、mm-hmm. of your COVID research, um, what do you feel like? Which experiences? 
um, throughout your PhD and maybe even undergraduate career? Um, which experiences from that time period did you feel really prepared you for something like this? That is a hard question because the whole COVID experience was so unique. Yeah. But probably from my PhD, you spend a lot of time working on a project. Usually you get very invested in it. And at the end of the day, many things do not work. And at the time, as a graduate student, I would get very upset when something didn't work. And, th and that's okay. Um, but I had to learn to pivot quickly, you know, learn from the experiments you did that didn't work and move on to the next direction. Mm -hmm. And so I'm able to do that very well now when things don't work or when I get rejected from this grant or rejected from this publication. I don't dwell on it for very long. I take what I can from it, take the feedback that I got and I move on very quickly to the next thing uh, or to the next revision. And that was useful in the pandemic as well because me and my, my lab mate could pivot very quickly when we didn't think something was going to work and we didn't dwell on it for very long. And that allowed us to get through experiments much faster and get positive results much faster as well. But that's a skill that I find you have to learn just from experience, just from yeah. doing, doing the science. So a lot of that's from my, my PhD. Yeah. Um, I have to ask you this question because it's something that's been on my mind lately as someone who's studying science in this pandemic. Um, um, as someone who was really at the front lines of COVID research, um, what, what do you feel about all the misinformation that's been so rampant throughout the course of this pandemic? Mm. And not just misinformation about the disease, but about the vaccines and about just science. And, and I would want to say like a, a lack of understanding and a lack of trust in regards to science in general. Like how, how do you as a scientist working on COVID, um, how, um, what is your response to that? Like, how do you feel about that? It's a, it's a tricky question. And I guess I didn't tell you what I was working on. So uh, at, at the end of my time doing COVID research, I, I had developed an, an assay that could the spike protein and a couple other viral proteins on that SARS-CoV-2 virus. And the first study we did is we looked at concentrations of that viral protein in the blood of COVID-19 patients. And, you know, we showed for the first time that, in fact, you could see some of that protein circulating in blood, and it was correlated with really severe cases of COVID-19. The, the second one, uh, which I was extremely excited about, is very early on, Healthcare workers at the Brigham and Women's Hospital were getting vaccinated. And I immediately jumped on the opportunity to get some samples um, and recruit some participants to see if we could measure the same viral protein in their, in their plasma. But of course, this would be from the vaccine, not from natural infection. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were able to see it. And again, it was, it was this first time study showing that you could see a little bit very small amounts of the spike protein circulating in blood and it happened right after the first shot and we also showed that as soon as a little bit of that spike protein was produced uh, participants generated the antibodies against it protein was gone from the circulation and participants 
kept mounting that antibody response. And, and that's exactly what these mRNA vaccines are supposed to do. Mm -hmm. So your question is very relevant because as soon as we published that, uh, it, it was quite a shock to me. It was picked up by anti-vaxxers and, and circulated all over Twitter. And I oh, came- God. Yes, yes. Oh, and I, I came to the same question is what is our role as the scientists who did this experiment to get involved with really everything that's happening on social media yeah. and, and being able to communicate this science. And I think I am still trying to figure that out. At the end of the day, I had a lot of random, you know, unidentifiable Twitter accounts posting, asking me questions. They were using it to question the safety of the vaccine. And as an analytical chemist, I can only speak to the data that we have and must avoid speculating mm -hmm. as much as possible. And a, and a lot of the things that were being brought up were speculations at the end of the day. And it's tough because I also cannot speculate other things that I would like to say. Um, and so my role is to present the data as it is, uh, try and disprove any of the speculations that can be disproven with my data. And for the most part, I did stay you know, away from emotionally responding to these Twitter posts, especially yeah. anonymous accounts. Mm -hmm. um, but it's tough. You know, I think our job as scientists is to disseminate the data, try and explain it to the best of our ability, peer review each other's work, and then keep going, keep learning from it and doing innovative research so we can understand more about this this disease. And then I think scientists like you are doing an excellent job trying to bring that to a more accessible point to the public because it is difficult yeah. to go tell someone to read a manuscript. Yeah. Um, and so it really has to be integrated work of the journalists and the scientists and the science communications enthusiasts. But I don't really know what to say. It's been crazy. Mm -hmm, I think definitely. The pandemic brought to light what was already happening around the sciences and science communication and sometimes I'm very disheartened but for the mm -hmm. most part I just want to do my best to present the data and the facts as they are look at everything very critically and if I form a hypothesis know what steps and experiments to take to test it mm -hmm. and then the cycle goes on well, I appreciate it so much, like just what you do and what you said about, again, like, I feel like, yes, a lot of like the things that anti-vaxxers say and the people who might be vaccine hesitant say, it is a lot of it is based on speculation, but for, and for me personally, I feel like science is just the opposite of that. We can't really like publish speculation. Um, and. I, and I totally agree with you. It's a lot of it is is emotional work. A lot of times I don't know how to respond when I see some see or hear like a preposterous statement, and um, a part of me feels responsible for like I want to find a way to get this information to them. Will they listen? I don't know. And can I just say that what you did sounds so cool? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah.
I feel like this pandemic just really highlighted the importance of science communication and the way to communicate it, not just like within the sciences, but getting it in a way where someone who, let's say, hasn't really taken a science course outside of their primary schooling um, because it's because they're not in that field to understand what we're what we're doing like at the yes. top institutions. Yes, and and there there is a positive side to this. Yes, there is a lot of miscommunication sciences, but I also saw a lot of amazing ways to explain to people how does the SARS-CoV-2 virus work? All these yeah. funny videos and these different animations, and even my own mom, who you know for a long time we hadn't talked much about our research, she was getting involved. She's like, "Do you know about mRNA?" <laughs> okay, mom, sure. And we we talked yeah. about it and you know, she's been learning about it and she's reading this new book about Jennifer Doudna and, and all her work with with RNA. And so at the same time, I think it did a lot of good for science, you know. Yes. There is a large part of the population who is interested again and who mm -hmm. can see the direct consequences of science research, which for exactly. example is the vaccines. Um because before, you know, no one thought about mRNA. People were studying this for a long time and even vaccines around it were, were being developed and now, you know, they're the star of the show. So there, there's a lot of positive things that came out of this as well for science. And, you know, it's, it's also inspiring in that way. Yeah, I um, personally, so in my, in my research, undergrad research work, I work with RNA. So I thought, I found it to be super cool to find everyone like start talking about RNA after the vaccines first came out mm -hmm. and and then as you said like it did do so much positive work as well because as a consequence people wanted to learn more about science and I was yes. really warned by that I I think mm -hmm. like as was everything there's always like the really positives and the really negatives and there's not that mm -hmm. much we can do about that <laughs> right right it's balance um but i've seen a lot of funny even tiktok videos talking oh, about yes. the vaccine yeah. and the virus and there i just think they're genius whoever yes. comes up with these yes. so creative yeah there is one video that i retweeted on a couple it was it was like a cartoon and it was so adorable <laughs> oh was it with the little people and he disguised himself as yes. a, it was like a sars cov 2 virus and then the cat gets vaccinated and the cat's like walking down the street this is after he's vaccinated and like somebody sneezes on him and the virus comes in and let the people beat up the virus yeah that was a very cute video that and things like that i just that it's amazing yeah. it's great yeah no i love it um i think now um you mentioned a lot about like doing research in in the pandemic and just like the i think unspoken and unseen like emotional toll it has on people especially the scientists working on it and i feel like it's especially in the time of covid this is a case this is the case but also like just in research in general like um before the pandemic during the pandemic doesn't matter what your research is it does have emotional toll um i and i found it was so interesting how you are also a fitness instructor and how you actually taught um, classes throughout your um, PhD. Uh -huh. um, what's what's it like doing that, and uh, what got you into fitness? And how do you think, like, being a fitness instructor, um, 
How do you think that has helped you as a scientist? Sure, I got into fitness during undergraduate school and my gym, school gym had a really cool program where you could apply to be a fitness instructor even if you didn't have the official certification and then they would help you get the certification and that is the program that I went through I think in about my junior year. I, I've always loved dancing and then I saw that you could teach fitness dance classes and I thought it was a great way to have a part-time job um, and, and keep incorporating my, my passion for dance. And I started there. I got my certification back in 2012 about, and I was teaching classes at my undergraduate gym. And then when I moved to UC Irvine, I did have to take a year off just to get settled in the PhD, but I, I really wanted to keep fitness a part of my life. And to do that, you, you really should be actively teaching consistently. Mm -hmm. And I got a job as a fitness instructor at the, the rec center wow. at UCI. Yeah, it, it worked out really well. They needed someone and, you know, fitness instructing, depending on how many classes you teach, it's only an hour per class. Mm -hmm. And so I was only teaching ever two to three classes a week, but it was mm -hmm. during a time where I would probably be working out anyways. So it did not mm -hmm. interfere with my studies. Um, and I'm trying to think there. Anyway, so I did that all throughout graduate school. I loved it. I taught Pilates and a cardio dance class. And then oh, I love it. in Boston, same thing. I, I had to be very proactive and try and find a gym that mm -hmm. needed someone at, for fitness instructing two to three classes. It isn't very much. Yeah. And I found a small women's gym and it was perfect. They needed a Pilates instructor. It was very cool. It was a women's only gym. Oh, wow. And nice. So I started teaching there. And then during the pandemic, we had to switch to virtual, but it kind of worked out because I helped them figure out how to do this over Zoom. And I was teaching virtual. Um, and right now I've moved again. So we will see what happens. And I, I really need to make sure I'm settled in first and yeah. have everything good with the assistant professorship. But um, it, it has been very critical to my mental health to keep that other part of my passion in my life and so I hope I can keep it up going forward. Yeah. Um, I just have to ask because I um, dance throughout my life. Um, um, what drew you into like this type of fitness in general, like dance and Pilates? The dance, I, I dance, I did ballet as a child and then I was on hip hop teams uh, in undergrad. And so I like the cardio dance part because I love music <laughs> and dancing and then Pilates, it was kind of funny. I, I actually don't like taking Pilates, but I love teaching it because I can teach it my way and I teach it to music. So it's almost like oh, dancing on it. the floor. Yes. Mm -hmm. I do everything to the beat. I do everything to eight counts. And, and so I, I love teaching Pilates and it was just another instructor who suggested, hey, you should try out Pilates because you did ballet and there's a lot of similarities between the movements and I said okay I'll give it a try what the heck um, and then I got into it and people received it very well so I've been keeping up with the Pilates I love it so much um, <laughs> how I think you had multiple questions by the way in your one question I don't remember them all oh um, I, I think the last bit of the question was just um, how has 
this um, interest in fitness and um, you being a fitness instructor is like how did, does having these interests that are almost totally unrelated to science how does it help you as a scientist mm, mm-hmm. as i've been teaching uh, it helps me tremendously with my presentation skills mm-hmm. because when you're teaching a fitness class you're speaking so you have to have good uh, oral communication yeah but you also have to be able to improvise quite quickly as i'm teaching i am giving the instruction that i planned out before i'm actively looking at my participants in the class i'm actively looking at their form trying to understand if they're doing it right and then if someone's not doing it right i have to make a decision do i change what i'm saying to try and correct them and so i have to go off script based what's happening in real time mm-hmm. and i find that has helped me a lot with presenting in science one because i'm comfortable speaking in front of people and nerves is a really big part of a uh, barrier to to good communication i'm quite comfortable with my personality because i have to show it in a fitness class and if mm-hmm. anything i have to be overshowing it you know mm-hmm. i bring the energy so that my participants have a good class and i i feel the same way about speaking at a seminar or presenting my data you know i i really should be bringing some of the energy and, and not just expecting energy from audience and then lastly this was easier in pre pandemic times um but, you know i could monitor the audience and got very good at reading facial expressions or body movements to see hmm are they understanding this are they not understanding this are they falling asleep so maybe i should you know change up my tone of voice and all of that i think has been taught learned and developed Um, and I just saw it was just wanted to know. Um, I actually watched your um, talk for the um, for the UCI Grad Slam, the one that you won. Oh, yes, I think um, I had horribly blonde hair at that point. So <laughs> I actually don't remember what color hair you had, but I actually watched that to help me prepare with a particular talk I had to give sometime like, like last quarter or two quarters ago. It's clear just how good of a presenter you are, and I was watching oh, thank that, you. and I said, "Oh, oh, like I have to. My goal is to sound like that when I talk. I have quite a long <laughs> ways to go, but um, it's quite apparent." And, and I, um, mm-hmm. good, good. Well, I didn't start that way, and the the only way you can get better is to keep practicing. Yeah. So just put yourself in situations where you have to talk out loud to people, mm-hmm. and it will develop. Um, I do want to congratulate you on your um, new position, um, assistant professor. Thank you. Um, how do you feel going into this position? Because um, correct me if I'm wrong, this is your very first semester, right? Um, or yes, yes. I I just moved here in July, so I've officially started July 1st, But this will be my first semester coming up. campus and I have some students in lab right now but we're really going to get going in September. Um uh, what are your feelings? How do you feel going into your very first semester? Surprisingly calm. <laughs> I think 
I had a few weeks to get over the overwhelm of being in a new place, trying to meet new people, mm -hmm. really not understanding anything about the system, and so constantly figuring out how to do things. That's a lot of this job is just showing up, figuring out how to do things, and then being ready to do that the next day. Mm -hmm. But I'm excited for the semester. I will be teaching an analytical lab. It is in person. I think they've restricted the number of students who can register, but I, I love working with undergrads. I came from an undergraduate institution and uh, I'm quite excited to meet them and work with them in person. And then, I don't know, I have a lot of grants to write, got classes to teach. I have three students already that I'm working with. And That's so, cool. Yeah, it's ex I'm, I'm right now quite excited very optimistic just happy to be here yeah. um what are you most excited about uh, i'm most excited about starting to do some experiments in my lab i think you know for a long time you're working under an advisor and you're you're doing your own ideas but this is the first time i really get to work on my ideas and help other students you know work on these ideas and see if our projects go anywhere um but we're talking the basics. I, I just want to be able to do a basic experiment because we're starting from scratch. We have an empty lab. Mm -hmm. That'll be exciting when my students start collecting the first sets of data, no, no matter how basic they are. It'll mm -hmm. be exciting. Uh, and again, the undergrads. I'm, I'm really excited to interact with undergrads. Um, how would you describe um, there's a whole process of building a lab from the ground up because you just mentioned you starting with an empty lab, three students. Oh. What, um, let's say, what are your um, aspirations for like what's going to happen to your lab in let's say five years? Uh, maybe, um, let, let's start smaller, one year. <laughs> I, know. I wish I could tell you the process of starting a lab, but it is um, it is a process when. Uh, when I got here and, and when you apply for these faculty positions, if you get far enough that you have an offer, then during negotiations, a lot of what you're trying to finalize is how much money the university is going to give you to start up your lab. And then lab space is very important. So whether or not you get a new lab that's renovated, whether they give you a temporary space, whether you share a lab with an existing professor, all of these things are negotiated. I ended up with a temporary lab space and I will have another new lab space probably a year and a half from now. But it's an empty it's an empty lab. It's got benches. It has whatever infrastructure was in there before. But uh, starting the process, I have to think of everything I need to buy, the small equipment, the pipettes, things I'd never thought about, trash bags, um, oh, yeah. all of it. And then we are slowly purchasing those things. I ran into a lot of EHS issues with the lab space that had to be dealt with. And I think the only way to know those were issues was going into the space and asking some questions. So I'm learning a lot about lab certifications and, and EHS. And then for students, recruitment is very important to a new faculty we we want we want to be able to recruit students yeah and two it's very important who our first students are because one they set the tone and the culture of the lab and of course two you know you need people who have experience in leadership 
and can be independent because you don't have those senior lab members like you do in an established lab. And uh, I was quite fortunate. I had a few students reach out to me once I was offered the position and I went through a couple rounds of talking them over Zoom and it was quite clear to me that they had leadership capabilities, they were great people, um, and they were excited about the research. So I'm happy to say that I have three students already and I'll probably stop there for the year. Um, but I imagine a lot of what I will be doing in the next year is actively recruiting more students uh, to the group. Well, I hope all that recruitment goes super well. Thank um, you. Um, and also, I feel like you are um, special in a way that you are coming into this new faculty position in the middle of a pandemic. And um, how do you, um, how did that, how did that change your um, recruiting process? Um, and how does that change the whole setup process? I know that you mentioned uh, meeting the prospective students on Zoom, which is probably something that we wouldn't have done if this wasn't a pandemic, but how did the circumstances of your incoming semester change the way, and did you prepare for this? It, the, the overall process has been very different than what I would have expected in pre-pandemic times. First of all, the entire interview was done over Zoom, and in typical times, you visit the university for the interview for a couple days. And then if you get an offer, you go back. You get to see the place in person, similar to what graduate students get to do when they visit schools for grad school. And I feel for all the faculty who have started during the pandemic, found a job during the pandemic, we essentially had to make a decision based off of Zooms. And some of us, like myself, had to make the jump and move to a country or city that we had never been to. Mm -hmm. And that was challenging. At the end of the day, I was very happy with the people I was talking to and the impression I got over Zoom. But that, whenever we're back to normal times, those in-person visits are so important uh, to understanding whether you think you will fit in to a university. And I think I, I'm empathetic because I think the graduate students are going through the exact same thing. They are choosing schools and they are choosing labs based off of Zoom. And that's a big decision for them. And so when I did Zooms, I made sure to do more than one with very specific objectives. So the first Zoom was just to get to know each other. I didn't talk too much about science, but you know, introduced them a bit. The second Zoom was all about the science and I gave them some papers to read. And then if they wanted, we had a third Zoom where again, it could it could just be an open discussion about anything that they wanted to talk about. And that was important because we needed more than one Zoom session to figure out each other's personalities. Mm -hmm. uh, and now that we're here, uh, my students are coming in in person. We're a very small lab, so we're not limited by COVID restrictions right now. We have to follow masking, social distancing, all that good stuff. But that is helping a lot. And I'm doing as much as I can to be present in person following the COVID guidelines, because I think at the end of the day, it's just nice to have that interaction where you can see each other's facial expressions. You can sit in silence without being awkward and you can see each other's body movements. And so as I go on in the year, I'm, I'm gonna do my best to, to be present in person.
Uh, what was the whole application process like for you?、Um, and what advice do you give for, let's say, post current postdocs or current graduate students who are kind of finishing up and are looking into applying for faculty positions? Process quite foreign to me. Even even though I was in research and. Doing my PhD in chemistry, I didn't actually decide to go for academia until the very end of my PhD.、Um, so I always tell people, if you change your mind about your career, it's okay. Just go 100% in whatever direction you've chosen. <laughs> But the application process, first, it's submitting written applications, and a school will normally ask for a cover letter, a research statement, which is essentially a proposal of your entire research program. Teaching statement and diversity statement. Sometimes those are one document. So a lot of the months before the fall, I spent preparing that application. In the fall, you submit. Since we had this over Zoom, most schools did a 30-minute Zoom interview, probably just to get an idea of who you were. And if you made the short list, you were then invited for the full interview, which was typically one to two days. Fully packed with one-on-ones with other faculty in the department, a proposal presentation, a seminar presentation on your previous work, and then some schools even had you do a teaching demo on a mock topic. And then finally, that's that's the last step. If if you make it past that and they want to give you an offer, then they tell you that you have an offer, and the negotiation step starts. And usually around March, April, May, people start accepting positions, and you you see announcements on on Twitter and university profiles that this person will start as a professor in the following fall. In in terms of advice, I think the proposal is the most challenging part to write because for the first time you have to come up with not just one project idea but several projects that don't just last three years; they last. For long term, five, ten years, you you have to have a vision. And、uh, what I would have told my past self is to start thinking of ideas now. If you're a graduate student, start brainstorming ideas now. If you're a postdoc, you know, start brainstorming ideas now. And they don't have to come to anything, but have a notebook and just anytime you think of an idea, write it down.、Um, and then talk about it with people. Talk about it with your lab mate. If you can talk about it with your supervisor and just have a casual conversation about what the proposal would be, is it a good idea? How would you carry it out? Instead of starting that process you know, as applications are going, I, I should have started that process、um, a few years ago, just so I was comfortable and less stressed during the application. I feel like I kind of feel the same way. About、um, well, I'm applying to graduate schools now, and I feel the same way. Of、uh, I probably should have started a bit sooner. <laughs> I do want to talk about like because、um, you did mention going into lab and like do make doing your research, but I do want to talk about like another very important part of being a professor, which is mentorship. And、um, how do you see yourself as a mentor who is now? Holds like a professorship position, and how do you want to help your future students, whether it be postdocs, graduate students, or undergrads?、Mm-hmm. Yes, mentorship is 
very important to me. And so in, in fact, it's a bit intimidating because I feel this big responsibility to properly mentor my students. Um, I will say I luckily had amazing mentors from my undergraduate advisor who basically got me into research um, all the way through my postdoc, you know, I have a lot to learn from each of them and I am taking bits of their mentorship styles and applying it here. But some of my core values that I will try and do for this first year and we'll see how it goes is uh, empathy, accountability and learning. I'm a really big fan of Brene Brown and she has a great book called Dare to Lead, which I highly suggest for anyone who wants to go into a leadership role, which is uh, almost everyone leader in some way and in some form in your career uh, but you know the learning is obvious but I think should be emphasized that as a graduate student you are learning you know, if yeah. you don't need to be perfect and if you're striving to be perfect I think it gets very stressful and, and the fact of the matter is you're developing and growing as a scientist and so understanding how to be the best learner you can uh, is very important to me. Accountability is a little bit more of that discipline. You have to learn to you know, be accountable for your actions or when you tell a collaborator you're going to do something, you need to do it with very good rigor and quality and that's just holding yourself accountable and then holding others accountable. Um, but it's not being accountable to being perfect. It's, mm -hmm. it's accountable to having critical thinking skills and, and being rigorous and th those are different things. And then the empathy is, I, I just, I put it first because the science is amazing, but it comes from people Yeah. at the end of the day, yes. And people are unique and they have different stories and different experiences. And the only way to really work with a diversity of people is to learn empathy and show empathy and practice empathy. and. You know, I'm not perfect. I'm still learning how to navigate that as well. But I think at the end of the day, empathy is a really big core value that I want to distill in my students and you know, practice in my mentorship. And then we'll, we'll see how this all goes. To be honest, I'm new, I'm young. Maybe these core values won't work out. Um, so I am also learning <laughs> and will change up my mentorship styles as I work with students and see how these things manifest um, in their successes. But for now, those are the, the core values I'm really passionate about and I'm gonna try and, and mentor my students around. I really appreciate what you said about like, even though yes, the science is cool, but who's doing the science is the people and we have to understand the stories behind the people who do the science because mm -hmm. there's really no other way to like either collaborate nor understand science without um, really understanding the people who do it and I feel like what works for me like while I do my experiments might not work for you might not work for somebody else and that understanding is and empathy as you said is very important for both collaborations and mentorship and I'm really excited for whoever you're going to mentor throughout your time as a professor because I feel <laughs> like they struck gold <laughs> oh, thank you yes we will we will see how it goes but um, I'm very excited 
Um, are there any aspects of the whole process of setting up a lab um, and getting getting your own getting students of your own? Are there any aspects of the process that you didn't really expect until after you've experienced it? Short answer: Yes. Um, I am not prepared to try and summarize it. We don't have to. Don't worry uh, about it. So so many things that I didn't expect and. And it, it happens so fast, and you have to keep going, and you have to figure them out. Um, that I, I can't even think of any that come to mind. But I, probably the overarching theme is that I am not doing right now any science. I am doing a lot of paperwork. I am doing a lot of management. I am doing a lot of budgeting and accounting, and I am starting to write grants. So that's. Actually, wonderful because I get to sit down and write about my science. But you go from a postdoc where all you're doing is research and science, 24/7, and then you're out of the lab. You're not thinking about experiments, and it feels like nothing in the postdoc prepared you <laughs> for anything oh, no. of an assistant professorship. Yeah, but it did. And again, it's that skill of critical thinking, figuring things out. You know, having the stamina to keep going, yeah. Um, when and, and showing up when you don't know what's going to happen, that all comes from graduate school and the postdoc. But yeah, I've, um, that was probably the most unexpected thing, and I'm sure there will be more things. It, 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 they kind of throw you into the deep end of a pool. Oh um, no! But but the the staff here and my colleagues at University of Toronto are amazing. Everyone I've talked to has been. Very nice and supportive, and so again, when it comes down to the people, that has been my, you know, biggest asset in life is there's always people to talk to who can support you mm -hmm. and help you, and I'm finding it here that the support is really great, and I appreciate it a lot. Oh, I'm I'm so happy for you, and <laughs> as I said for I I would say probably like one million times, I'm so excited to see like everything that you will do at this new stage of your career um is there anything you're nervous about um going into this your very first semester probably the classic worries that assistant professors have not getting the grants not progressing i say quote unquote progressing at a speed that you were expecting and then from for me, probably be being nervous about accidentally being a bad mentor, um, but it's taken a long time for me to get to this point where I'm pretty confident in myself and not confident that I will do everything perfectly, but confident that I will figure it out. You know, I have the skills, I have good intentions, and I will make sure that things work out. Um, for myself and the people around me, and that took a long time to get to. <laughs> I was yeah. not that confident throughout my PhD and even postdoc. But um, so those worries, I'm trying so hard not to let them get to me. It's all mm -hmm. a mental game. Yeah. Um, but they're there. Yeah. They're there, and they're also valid in a way. Um, <laughs> it's yeah. hard to imagine like professors getting nervous, but we're all human. And we all we are all human, and then at some point it's just 
Yeah, the amount of nervousness, what we're worrying about is probably similar. It just how much it bothers us changes mm -hmm. uh, as you get older, I imagine. Um, well, we are almost running out of time, so I would wrap up with my two final questions. If there's nothing else that you want our listeners to know. I think I'm good. I'm just curious. You're going to apply to, to graduate school. That's amazing. Do you have career aspirations? Um, right now, um, I want to, to, to put it like in the very sappy way. I want to be like you. I want to be a professor. <laughs> <laughs> um, but who knows? I might change a couple years into graduate school, but I do like teaching a lot. Um, I love research. Um, oh, so that's I, a great, that's a great start. So right now that's what I'm looking into, but I, I haven't even gotten my bachelor's yet, so I'm not going to talk too much. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. That's, that's wonderful, though. That's wonderful. Yeah. Um, since you are our very first guest on uh, my podcast who has gone through undergrad and graduate school and a postdoc, um, this is kind of similar to one of my previous questions where I asked, like, what prepared you? And what advice you would give for people wanting to become a professor, but um, it's more like what um, advice would you give either your past self or current undergrads, graduate students, just about science for life in general and how to get through what we're going through? I guess two pieces of advice. The first being that wherever you are in your scientific career, Find out who people are around you, get to know them, build a network. Again, a, a lot of my success I attribute to the people that I worked with, the people that I knew, people that I talked to, even if it was just for five minutes in passing in lab. And it, it still remains to be such a huge benefit is mm -hmm. my ability to get to know people and like genuinely want to get to know them. Mm -hmm. um, and then this one's a little bit harder, <laughs> uh, but try to keep it fun and keep your curiosity sort of kid-like. Um, at, at every stage, undergrad, PhD, postdoc, you know, I took myself very seriously. And that's not to say that it, it wasn't beneficial for my career, but in graduate school, postdoc, and even now, you get to do research and you get to do things that no one's done before and you get to try experiments and ideas and see if they work and you know staying very curious and and having fun and trying to do science with a smile I think is um, an advice I would have for my past self because sometimes I felt very serious and something didn't work it was the end of the world when um, at the end of the day, scientists have the coolest job sometimes of yeah. innovating new things. Mm -hmm. And it's hard. I'm not going to lie. Mm -hmm. I didn't see that all the time. But try and smile. Try and have fun. And appreciate the, the amazing science you get to do, even if you don't think it's amazing. Um, I really like what you said about, like, um doing science with a smile right and it yeah. you know some people will roll their eyes and be like oh well it's not fun all the time and I completely agree with you it is not mm -hmm. fun all the time but overall I think 
one, if you're not having fun all the time, maybe reassess what kind of science you're doing and if you should try something else. But um, yeah, it's important to have fun when we're, we're doing chemistry. Exactly. And uh, it's only fitting for me to close off. It was the very last question, which is the classic chemistry question. Uh, what is your favorite type of tea? Ooh, this is good because I'm currently on a coffee slash caffeine break. I have been drinking a lot of matcha lattes oh. and my order at Starbucks is a hot matcha latte with oat milk and no sugar. So <laughs> that sounds so good. They, yeah, actually, they're really getting me through. Yeah. You're actually the second person on this podcast to say matcha lattes. So it's quite popular with my chemist tea guests. <laughs> <laughs> they're so, they're so good. And no. a really good matcha latte will just pump me up for the rest of the day. Um, and the oat milk too. Um, I don't know what, what it is about oat milk. Oat milk just makes things taste better. I know. I can't believe we didn't know about <laughs> oat milk until the past couple of years. I'm, um, I'm vegan most of the time. And so I've done mm -hmm. the soy melts and the almond milks, but the oat milk just, yeah, I don't know how we didn't discover this earlier, but it's, it's amazing. It's such a game changer in my lattes. Um, just genius, whoever found that. Yeah, have to say it. Well, um, this concludes our episode. I'm so thankful that you were able to join me all the way from all the way from Canada. Um, I hope you had a great time. It was an honor speaking to you. Um, it was an honor having you on the podcast. Oh, and thank you. Yeah, um, thank you so much for joining and thank you all of our listeners for listening. Um, I will link, um, I will link Alana or Professor Ogata's on Twitter um, in our description below. So feel free to give her a follow. And um, thank you so much for supporting this podcast. Thank you so much for sharing, listening. Um, since we are an unsponsored podcast, um, there is a link to our Kofi donation page also in the episode description. Um, we are very excited um, to have you join us as this podcast grows. Um, we hope, I hope you all have a fabulous day and thank you so much. Bye-bye.